Shall we pray? Our Father, every time we come to your word, it's as if it's fresh and new again. It's partly because of its depth. and We will never plummet the fullness of its meaning and teaching for us. But it's also because we're in a new place as we approach the scriptures each time. And so, therefore, it will be newly applied by your spirit. And that's what we pray for today, that it will be fresh and new and you will apply it for good and for fruit in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Please open God's word with me to Luke 19. Our text today are the verses 11 through 27 of Luke 19, page 878 of the Church Bible. Luke 19, beginning with verse 11. This is God's word. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come, or engage in business because I am coming again. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business or what they had been doing in business first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful and very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept away in a handkerchief, For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Well, then why did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Some believers are confused or maybe have little understanding about the subject of rewards for believers in the new heavens and the new earth. Some people teach that, well, the Christian can't merit a reward because if we speak in that language, that's going to open the door to any concept that's going to danger the sufficiency of Jesus Christ or it will obligate God. And we know that we can't obligate God. But in our text, Jesus is speaking very clearly of the rewards for the believer I believe that this is a different parable than what's given in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. 
The, those two parables are given at different times and the details are very different. So this is, parable stands on its own and Jesus gives this parable of the minas as he's entering into Jerusalem. This is his final week. He's headed to the cross and to his resurrection. And while he gives this parable, he calls us to reflect upon the nobleman who, while he's gone, expects his servants to be faithful. And the nobleman, when he returns, will ex- examine his servants as to how they have been faithful. Let's consider both of those this morning. While he's gone, the nobleman expects his servants to be faithful, verses 11 through 14. Jesus is this nobleman who's seeking to establish his kingdom. And he gives this parable to teach us again, this is not the time for his glorious kingdom, even though his spiritual kingdom has begun. You notice that again in verse 19, verse 1, he's coming to Jericho and now people are on his way to Jerusalem. He's only a few miles away and people are beginning to get excited. Maybe this is the time for the glorious kingdom. In fact, what follows this parable is Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Yes, he's coming to Jerusalem to be their king, but not a king like they hoped for that's going to overthrow Rome with political power and glory. They did not understand that Christ's kingdom comes in two stages. Christ in his incarnation brings his kingdom spiritually by faith, and those who trust in Christ are brought into his kingdom. The kingdom's final stage of glory will only happen at his return, and Jesus is giving this parable to teach his people he's not come in his incarnation to establish his glorious kingdom at that time. No, he's heading to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. For he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, 1725. But when he returns again, that will be his glorious kingdom. Isn't it interesting at this time of the parable, Jesus hasn't even died yet. He's on his way to Jerusalem. But he set his face... And the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so certain. Jesus is already looking ahead past his ascension into glory and even looking to his second coming at the end of this age because all of his work is so certain. And so he gives this parable. The people are wrong to assume that Christ's kingdom was then to begin in glory and power and splendor. No, it's begun spiritually and it will grow in the gospel in this age, but we're waiting for the nobleman to return. We're waiting for Jesus to return. And so until he does, he tells us, he's given us each a charge to be faithful and wait for the coming of our king. Jesus is the nobleman who's seeking to establish his kingdom, but Jesus is also the nobleman who's giving gifts for us to us to invest for him while he's away. Verses 12 and 13, reading again. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, calling ten of his servants. He gave them ten minus and said to them, engage in business because I am coming again. The nobleman, you notice, gives each of his servants the same amount and he gives each of them Here's another difference between the parable and Matthew where they were given 
talents. Mina is a very small amount of money. At most, it's worth 100 days' pay. It's certainly not a fortune. And the same amount is given to each, just as a free gift. This wasn't a way for the nobleman to make some money. This was a test for his servants to see if they would be faithful, if they would be obeying him in the amount that he's given to them. So he's given each of them a mina just as a way to test their faithfulness. And you notice verse 13 has two different ways to translate it as we read it this morning. It can be translated, until I come. And then Jesus is saying, do your best, and it's a limited amount of time, and do it until the end, until I come back again. Or it can be translated, and I think in better translated, be faithful because I am coming back again. In other words, it's an assurance to them. During this time when you're going to be faithful to me, there's going to be many people who will oppose you. But don't lose sight of the fact that I am coming back again. And I am aware of what you are going through. So be faithful to the end. Be faithful when people are hostile to me and to my kingdom. It's going to cost you if you're going to be faithful and loyal to me. Think of the believers in Afghanistan. I expect you to be faithful because I am coming again. Moses is our example. Hebrews 11.26 regarding the disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. When the audience that day listened to Christ's parable, we believe that they were very much thinking of their own history. At that time, the people of Judah had a Roman king ruling over them. But for a king to be appointed as king, he had to travel first to Rome to be given his authority as king. Herod the Great had to do this, as did his son Archelaus. Archelaus went to Rome to press his case to be the king instead of his brother Antipas. But Archelaus was very unpopular. In fact, he was hated so much that when he went to Rome to be appointed as king, the Jews also sent a delegation of 50 men to petition the emperor that they did not want Archelaus to rule over them. But the emperor did appoint Archelaus as the tetrarch, despite the people's protest. But in response to them coming to protest, According to Josephus, Archelaus, once he was in power, had 3,000 of those who opposed his rule slaughtered on the first Passover after his appointment. He was such a cruel ruler that even in 10 years, Caesar realized he needed to go and he removed him from power. That only happened 30 years before this parable, in the lifetime of these people. And Archelaus had been appointed he, the, the crowds were off probably thinking that day, boy, this sounds a lot like somebody being appointed king and the crowds didn't want him to be their ruler. Archelaus built a very magnificent palace for himself in Jericho. Where's Jesus today? In Jericho, giving this parable. You can almost imagine the people sitting, gathering around Christ and they can look up and see the, para, the, the palace that Archelaus is built. Jesus is using this event in the life of this audience to shape this parable to them. Because they are the ones who despise Christ as being their king. Not because Christ is cruel like Archelaus, 
Christ everywhere went in compassion to save the lost. But they despised him for exposing their pride and their self-righteousness. They hated Christ. They wouldn't have him to be their savior. They wouldn't have him to be their king. Jesus is giving this parable to his disciples. The world has hated me, and while I'm gone, they're going to hate you as well. There's going to be times when it's difficult to stand for Christ. There's going to be times when people will be opposed to Christ's rule. But you be faithful to the end. He's coming back. And he will reward those who have been faithful to him. While he's gone, the nobleman expects his servants to be faithful. The second part of the parable is is when he returns, the nobleman rewards his servants who have been faithful. So in God's time, Jesus Christ will return, and he will deal with both the faithful and the unfaithful. Notice how in the parable the nobleman returns. He calls for an accounting. And then, look, then we'll look at how he responds to those who were unfaithful and how he responds to those who were faithful. So in the parable, the nobleman returns. He's now king, and he calls for an accounting, verses 15 through 19. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained in doing business or what had been done in business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a little, you will have authority over 10 cities. And the second came, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. You notice as we read this, verse 15, again, there's a question of translation. Do you translate this, that the nobleman has come to see how much has been gained? In other words, show me the money, where's the profit? It can be translated that way, but that's the secondary meaning. The primary meaning in the older translation is much preferred. The master is looking to see how much work there has been done, not how much profit. So the Young's literal translation, that he might know what any had done in business. What's the difference? When the king returns, he's looking for activity. He's not necessarily looking for profit. When he opens the ledger books, he wants to see how busy you were, even if there's been little return. It shows the nobleman shows the king that his servant was not ashamed of him. And he was busy in the master's work, even though there may be little profit, even though there be many that tried to be hostile to him. But if the king comes and opens the book and there's no activity, that means that the servant was ashamed of him and did nothing. The king is returning to look for faithfulness, not necessarily success. Have you been loyal to me? Have you been faithful to me in my absence, even though you faced hostility? And it's supported by what he says to the servants. He praises the servant that was good and faithful, not good and successful. 
In Matthew's parable of the talent, each one is given a different amount. And to teach that God gifts believers with different gifts, different talents, different opportunities, different abilities, and each will be rewarded as they have applied the gifts that God has given to them. And there the application is to whom much is given, much is required. But Luke's parable is different. The parable here about the miners, you notice, they're all given the same amount. We all have the same calling. To all who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, our life's calling is faithful obedience until he returns. We have the same responsibility to be faithful and obedient until our Savior comes again. And the basis of reward is not going to be profit. The basis of reward is not success. The basis of reward is, have you been faithful? Have you been pressing ahead in holiness of character and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? The Lord is going to reward in proportion to faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. Reward is for faithfulness. It's going to be worth it all when you see the Lord. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Do you see the encouragement here? It's not all the big results before men that you will be judged, but the faithfulness. Think of the encouragement to missionaries to some countries of the world where there's been little returns of the gospel. Missionaries to Islam that could be there their whole life and never see anyone receive Christ. The reward in this parable is not on the returns, but on the activity. So the nobleman returns. He's looking for an accounting. Let's look to the one side, those who have been unfaithful. And even those break into two groups. You have, first of all, verses 20 and the unfaithful servant who views his master as harsh. He's not. That's just the way he views him, and so he doesn't obey. He, doesn't done, he hasn't done anything. He doesn't care at all for the king. He just wants an easy life, and so hides away the mina that the king gave to him. In the end, the unfaithful servant will have his money removed from him. There was no activity on their books. They did nothing. They were ashamed to be known to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so therefore they will receive rebuke and they will receive loss. Did the unfaithful servant really know the master? Was this master really harsh? No. They didn't have a relationship with him at all. They didn't even know him or desire to obey him. And so even what he had is taken away, 1 Corinthians 3.12. In truth, this king is very generous. He rewards ten minas with ten cities. Completely out of proportion. He is lavish and generous to those who are faithful to him. If this servant had really believed that the master was harsh, he wouldn't have disobeyed him. He would have at least put his money in the bank at interest, minimal work. But he did nothing. And the challenge is to all of us who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ, are you striving to be like Christ? 
pressing on in obedience, pressing on in faithfulness, living for him. There's no standing still in this Christian life. So you have the unfaithful servant. And then you have the rest of the crowd, the enemies of the king. Verse 27, as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. These are the ones who did not want him to be king. It applies certainly to that generation. Christ's trial and crucifixion, the crowd shouted, we will not have this man rule over us. And that generation was destroyed in A.D. 70. But it applies to all unbelievers on Judgment Day. They will face the wrath and eternal death. And perhaps the disobedient, wicked servant is in this group as well. We're not told. A nominal Christian could not be, could be really not a Christian at all. But all unbelievers who would not have Christ... 2 Thessalonians 1 says he will punish those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his holy people. So you have two groups of of those who are unfaithful. You have his enemies who said they won't submit to Christ as their king and their ruler and their masters and they will be judged. And then you have this whole group of people who claim to be servants, but they act as if Christ is not their ruler. Christ is not their king. And even what they have will be taken from them. And they also will be judged with the Lord's enemies. Being unfaithful is living as if this doctrine of Christ's second return really doesn't matter that all. You know, you may not deny it outright like liberals do or others. It's just one of those Bible's teachings that has no practical value to you. It isn't going to happen soon, so let's not give too much attention to it. I just want to live life like how I want to live it. That's the unfaithful servant who is not busy being faithful for the king. And they will have great sorrow at the judgment seat of Christ. They will not hear, well done good and faithful servant. So the nobleman responds, he replies to those who have been unfaithful. Look at the nobleman's response to the faithful and the basis for their rewards. The Bible teaches there are two kinds of merit and these must be kept distinct, they must be kept separate. There's the merit of Christ's work for our salvation, for our justification, and we as believers do not add to that at all. And when we speak of the believer's reward in heaven, we're not speaking of salvation by works because we've already been saved. Believers who are saved in this life will be rewarded with greater opportunities, but that's because we're already trusting in the merit of Jesus Christ. Salvation, justification, is based only upon Christ's work for you. Christ, who came and voluntarily laid down his life and went to the cross to take our sin and the judgment that our sin deserved, his merit alone that's received by faith alone, that's the only basis of our salvation. William Temple once put it, the only thing I contribute to my salvation is the sin from which I need to be delivered. No one earns God's favor by our works. 
only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that of, this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Philippians 3.9, O to be found in him, <clears throat> not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Jonathan Edwards said on Judgment Day for the believers, quote, As to their evil works, they will not be brought forth against them on that day. For the guilt of them will not lie upon them, they being clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The account that will be found in God's book for believers will not be of debt, but of credit. Because we are standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Salvation, justification, is based upon Christ's work for you, his merit alone. But the reward for the believer is based on your works for Christ. The faithful servant obeys the order from the king. They don't live for themselves. And the king is watching and he's keeping track and he will reward faithfulness. There's a mystery here. Because it's only the Holy Spirit that causes us to work for Christ. Philippians 2.13, it's the Holy Spirit that gives us both the willing and the doing of God's good pleasure. We pray that he will do that work in us, what is pleasing to him, the benediction of Hebrews 13. And the works that the Holy Spirit has caused us to want to do, those are the works that God will reward. God crowns his own work, as the Belgic Confession says. God rewards good works, but it is by his grace that he crowns his gifts. Sounds like Augustine's beautiful phrase, God rewards his own works. Or as Piper cleverly put it, God's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy himself forever. God rewards his works that he has done in us? Yes. John Calvin, a reward is promised to believers if they walk in the commandments of God, since in his inestimable liberality, he deals with them as if they had something to deserve it. Westminster Confession 16, nevertheless, because believers are accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him. They are accepted not because believers are in this life unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but because he, looking upon them in his son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, even though it is accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. Charles Hodge, there is no inconsistency, therefore, in scriptures denying all merit to the believers for their justification, and yet teaching they shall be rewarded according to their works. The basis of God rewarding the believers is your work for Christ. Quite a solemnity to that, isn't there? That certainly balances out a false idea that Well, it's all of grace, so it doesn't matter how I live. It's all going to be a wash. Oh, no, it's not. Judgment day is the day when believers' life will be examined. And all the straw will be burned away. 
person's life will be presented to Christ, and all that's done for Christ, according to his word, will be rewarded as gold and precious stones. But in this life, all that's done for self, all that's done inconsistent with scripture, is going to be burned away, even though someone's life might appear to us to be a great success. There will be those whose life will be burned away. They have nothing to show for a lifetime, no reward. Second John 1.8, watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. James Petty illustration in the hurricane. When the earthquake hit San Francisco a few years back, it destroyed a double-decker highway. Well, all of the structures in the city were supposed to be earthquake-proof, but some were severely damaged. The humiliated architects were allowed to live, but their reputations were destroyed. There is a solemnity to this for the believer. The generosity of the rewards. The Bible is telling us there's going to be an eternal reward or loss, based upon the Christian's labor now for Christ. Can we ponder that? New Testament has 22 references to the degrees of reward in heaven. Luke 19 is one of them. To the one who has presented his minas, he has been faithful He will be given more. I tell you that to everyone who has shall more be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. All believers are equally justified, equally saved. Not are all equally sanctified. It's those who are striving by faith and godliness that will be rewarded. The servant who was faithful either gained ten cities or five cities. You see, it's responsibility, it's privilege in the kingdom of God that God is going to honor. It isn't that he's going to be given a more paid vacation or a villa by the sea or generous pension, more cities to rule. Rayburn says it's certainly true that everyone who believes in Jesus is saved and goes to heaven. As a class, they receive the same things, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, endless joy, perfection of body and spirit, and supremely life in the immediate presence of the Lord forever. But all of that being said, is there any reason to doubt distinctions in glory when the scripture seems so clearly to teach that some will receive greater rewards and some lesser Some will rule over ten cities. The Lord, knowing what's ahead for his people, especially their persecution and all of these disciples, all of these apostles to be martyred, is encouraging them, motivating them to greater faithfulness in his kingdom. Press on in obedience. It's going to be worth it all when you see Christ, that you've been faithful to him. Take seriously how we live our lives in this world. We need to be ready to make sacrifices for Christ and his kingdom. This parable drives us on to be more faithful in obedience to Christ and his word. Your reward, believer, in 
heavens and the new earth is based upon your faithfulness now. Judgment Day isn't just going to be a wash, as if everybody gets a trophy. Everybody gets congratulations. Just as hell will reflect God's justice, so hell is arranged, so heaven is arranged an eternal life of honor and responsibility in the new heavens and the new earth, based upon the Christian's faithfulness now in Christ's kingdom. J.C. Ryle writes, Our title to heaven is all of grace. Our degree of glory in heaven will be proportioned to our works. Everyone shall receive his own reward according to his labor. A couple labored 20 years to translate the scriptures into the language of a tribe in South America. The Bible had never been in their language. Often what happens in these situations when Bible translators come into a tribe where they've never had the scriptures and they gather people around them to help them with the translation project. Very often, there's a group of people who soon come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because they're hearing the word of God the first time in their mother tongue. But this couple labored for 20 years in the translation work. And instead of people showing interest as time went on, there was less and less interest in this Bible translation project. The people were more interested in growing and exporting drugs. After 20 years, the Bible translation was completed and the missionaries scheduled a dedication service to celebrate this great event. No one came, not a single person. Missionary couple were greatly discouraged. They'd given 20 years of their life, and the tribe didn't even want the scriptures. And the wife recorded her anger, and then she wrote, Then I read the parable of the ten minas in Luke 19, and the Lord enabled me to see things from his perspective. I am just beginning to realize that we did it for him. It's the only thing that makes any sense in all of this. We did it for God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we are the unworthy servant. It is simply our duty and to respond to such grace and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. How can it be that you would reward obedience and faithfulness? We cry out to you for a greater work of your spirit in our life to give us both the willing and the doing of your good pleasure. That we not lose heart, that we press on to know the Lord, and that we press on to apply your word to all areas of our life. Give us the courage, give us the steadfastness, give us the dependence upon you and your great grace. Thank you that our Savior is returning, and he will reward what is done for him. May we each here on that day 
Well done, good and faithful servant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.